Uh, you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're um, this morning going to be looking at a text, verses 9 to 17, but we're just going to look this morning at verses 9 to 13. And uh, this message basically talks about having dinner with sinners. That's the, the message this morning. Uh, one commentator says it talks about receiving the sinner, refusing the righteous. And so we're kind of excited to get to this part in our text. But we've been working through Matthew chapter 9. We've been looking at chapters 8 and 9 and incredible, the miracles that we've seen in the life of the ministry of Christ, his wonders, his mighty deeds, and uh, really the signs that he was the Messiah. That's what was his purpose. And so this morning we come once again to Matthew chapter 9. And let me just read for you the text and then we'll give a little introduction and then we'll head into it. Uh, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him. And uh, with him and his disciples, excuse me, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This morning, we're going to be looking at that text and... um, the one thing that we realize about the Christian faith, and we've all heard this as we've gone out and we shared our faith in this lost and dying world in which we live. Um, when you say you invite someone to church or you share Christ with them, they have a tendency to come across and they'll say, well, you know, Christians aren't perfect. You ever hear that? Well, okay, that's true. We aren't. Tell me something I don't know. I'm reminded of that every day. All right. You invite them to church, they'll say, oh, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And they're right. Okay, that's true. Unfortunately, that's what we're made up of. Uh, that's just in our person. That's who we are. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. And a lot of time, it's, it's, it's good just to say, well, you know what? We could all, always use one more. Come on in. Because that's what the church is about. It's about rescuing sinners. It's about rescuing those who are in need of a Savior. And so a lot of times, you know, that covers the broad, vast of the population of the earth. Everybody, the words of God says, is a sinner. But the important part is that those who at least come to church or are in the church, at least are admitting it. They're willing to admit it. And we know our faults. We're not perfect. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people today have the idea that religion is for good people. The church is for good people. You can't come into the church if you're a bad person. That, that wouldn't be good. You've got to clean yourself up first, and then you come in. See, that's really not what Jesus taught. The truth really is that the church is for bad people. For bad people who know just how bad they are. (laughs) That's why they come to God. That's why they come to Christ. That's why they're seeking a Savior. Uh, 
And in the text this morning, we see in Matthew verse, chapters 9, verses 9 to 13, even on the, to 17, that Christ is, is really making some very dramatic statements to the religious leaders of his day. And in this section, he gives the full perspective of his ministry. He gives the full perspective on his incarnation, why he came. And it all boils down to verse, basically at the end of verse 13, where he says there, For I did not come to call the what? The righteous, but who? Sinners. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. That's the essence of what we're going to look at this morning. If you don't get anything else from this morning's sermon, please take that verse home with you. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, God has come into this world to give his son, to die on a cross, to be raised the third day. He did all that not for good people. He didn't do it for the good people. He didn't do it for the righteous people. He says he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, that's the message of Christianity. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the reason why Christ came. Why did he come? People ask that question all the time. Why did Jesus come? It says right there to call sinners. Those who know they have a terminal disease. Those who are desperate, those who are hurting, those who are without guidance in their life, those who are hungry, those who are thirsting, the Bible says. Those who are weak, those who are weary, those who have been broken over their sin. Those whose lives have been utterly shattered. Sinners who know that they're sinners. That's why Christ came. Many famous people throughout the ages, Augustine being one of them, he said this, great saint that the world thinks of him as, Lord, save me from the wicked man, myself. That's what he viewed himself as. John Knox, probably one of the greatest preachers in the country, uh, history of uh, Scotland, said this, in youth, in middle age, and now... Even now, after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. <laughs> John Wesley, who wrote a lot of the hymns and things that we sing, even his, his brother, he said, I'm falling short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. And consequently, my whole life, seeing an evil tree, cannot bear forth good fruit. The man that wrote the song, hymn that we know, Rock of Ages, said this about himself. Oh, that such a wretch as I should ever be tempted to think highly of himself. I that am myself nothing but sin and weakness in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing. See, Jesus came, the Bible says, to call righteous not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That's what the Bible says. Even Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a what? What do he say? Sinful man. And even Paul in 1 Timothy summed it all up. He said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? To save sinners. And then he goes on, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost sinner there is, and he came to save me. And I think 
he had Matthew in mind when he wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's explicitly the point of this text this morning, that Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. That makes me glad. I'm glad that I don't need to come to God and get all cleaned up and, and you know, so he can save me. You know, you come to God with a broken heart over your sin, you don't need to clean your sin up. He'll take care about that. He'll take care of that. I mean, if you stop and think about it, if Jesus Christ came into the world to save only the righteous, who would be in heaven? Nobody. Because the Bible said there is no righteous. There's none. Not one that's righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible says. And see, a lot of times people take the gospel and they want to put this positive spin on it. And so they boil it down to a little book with four little rules or whatever. You know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life and you know all this stuff. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, you know what? You're nothing. There's nothing good in you. And unless you come to Christ, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you. There's a plan, all right, but it doesn't end with one in heaven. It ends with one in a place called hell, a place of utter torment, a place of utter darkness, a place that no one in their right mind would want to go to. So he calls sinners, not righteous. See, the problem is there's many people who think they're righteous. They think they're righteous. Look at their lives, what they do, how they act, what they do in the society around us. Maybe they help out the school. They do all sorts of things for different nonprofit organizations and everything, and they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Well, I got news for you. If that's how you're feeling this morning, Jesus can't help you. He can't help you at all. Because he, he didn't come for you if you think you're righteous. He didn't come for you. He came for those who know they're sinners. See, the gospel has to have a negative message as part of it. I mean, there's a positive end too. But we can't forsake the negative just to get to the positive. Christ is the solution for those who look at their own sinfulness and realize they're utterly helpless, lost in their sin. And then they come to Christ and they ask Him for help. And you know what? He helps them. See, people don't come to God for healing unless they know they have a disease. They don't come for life unless they know that they're dead. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. A guy by the name of Julius Shewin said this, put it up there on the thing. He says, then this is conversion. I love this. To accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. See, it's bad then good. <laughs> to accept the death sentence that we're all doomed to hell without Christ's help. We have to accept that. There's no other way out of that. that what does that do? When we hear that message, that drives us to the cross. That's why it's so important when we share the gospel. It's important to share the law of God with people. It's important to share them with them that, and bring them to a conclusion that they've broken God's law. 
You can do that simply. You ask them, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you? And they're kind of hesitant. Well, what do you call me a liar? I'm like, no, but if you lie, what does that make you? And you walk through that and you talk about stealing. You talk about your thought life and you go through the Ten Commandments that way. They're going to be convicted. What they do with that conviction, that's on their heart. But that's a great statement to accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. We have to accept death first. That's why the Bible says that you have to die to yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow him. And that's why Christ's message was so penetrating. It was so powerful in his day because he tore off all the self-righteousness that the religious leaders had and he exposed the evilness of their heart. They didn't like that. Nobody likes that. You know, you'll never win anybody to Christ, a friend, a relative, anybody, until they realize that they have a need for Christ. It's not just talking somebody into it. They have to express a need for it. Well, Matthew, in this text, really is presenting the Messiahship of Christ. He's trying to prove it in every way possible. And we've looked at that in chapters 8 and 9. He verified his Messiahship and his Lordship, the Saviorhood of Christ, the deity of Christ, the reality that he's the Son of God. He's trying to share with his Jewish readers, look, this is, this is the man. This is the Messiah. And he verifies it through all the miracles. And these weren't just random miracles. This is just not like, ah, oh, I think I'll heal this guy. Yeah, this sounds like a good... No, they were picked strategically to support what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. And we've talked about that. And there's basically nine miracles in this section. They're, they're in sets of three, three miracles each. So he gives three miracles, and then he tells us about what the response of the people was. And then he gives the second three miracles, and then he tells us what the response of the people The first three miracles dealt with disease, sickness, and it showed Christ's power over illness, disease, infirmity of the flesh, all those things. And after those miracles, you remember, there was a response. What did they do? They left. They said, oh, I'll follow you. And he said, well, to follow me, here's what's, what's required. And they all left. The three examples in Luke 9. And so the response was sad. And then there was a second set of three miracles didn't really emphasize illness that much, but rather it, 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 the, the first of the second three was his power over the elements. We talked about nature, how he calmed the sea and all that, and we, we looked at that in depth. And then how his power over demons, and thirdly, his power over sin. And now we're here in chapter 9. Jesus has just totally forgiven a man's sin. And he proved it by telling that man to get up and walk. And he tracked the leaders of the day into kind of verifying what just happened. We looked at that last week. And so Matthew is saying that the Messiah has power over the physical body. He has power over demons. He has power over sin. Therefore, he has the power to usher in his kingdom when the time is right. That's why this man is the Messiah. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Well, we're here in Matthew 9. We're, we're done with the second set of miracles and now the response and it's divided the response is divided there's a positive response and there's a negative response and we're going to look at these over the next two weeks the positive response comes from a sinner the negative response comes from someone a group of people who think they're righteous and so the response 
to those miracles that we've looked at the last couple weeks is in our text, verses 9 to 17. And so there's a transition here. Verse 9 is basically the call of Matthew. It's the first part of the positive response that Christ kind of lays out here for us. Now, he says there he he sees a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. That's a positive response. And then he continues on and he enters into this dialogue with the Pharisees. That's the negative response. And you look at the two responses and they're, they're so far apart, it's ridiculous. And so let's make this transition Jesus has just forgiven this man's sin. Matthew makes that point in verses 1 to 8. He has the ability and the power to forgive sin. And immediately the question comes up among the people they are gathered and seeing this miracle. Well, okay, he can forgive that man's sin, but how much sin can he forget? That's the question they're asking themselves. What are the perimeters of Jesus' ability to forgive sin? What, to what extent... Can he forgive sin? What are the dimensions of his forgiveness, you might say? And that's what he's spelling out for us here in the following verses. He answers those questions. He can forgive sin. Yes, he forgives the paralytic. You see that. But how far does that go? Who else's sin can he forgive? And whose sin does he not forgive? What's the required response? What's necessary to experience this forgiveness? I don't know anybody who would say, no, I don't want forgiveness. Most people want forgiveness from anybody or anything. Anything they've done in their life. So all these questions here are answered in what follows. So now remember, Jesus has been teaching in verses 1 through 8. Probably in Peter's house, as we talked about last week in Capernaum by the seashores. Small little town. The meeting's over. The paralytic's healed. He, he basically grabbed his pallet and took off. You know, he was just really excited about being healed and having his sins forgiven, even more so. And he left with his four friends. And the other, the other Gospels, Matthew, or Luke 5 and Mark 2, tell us basically that Jesus goes out the door of that house after the meeting's over. The meeting's dismissed at the house, and, and, and typically Jesus leaves. And it says in the other Gospels that he walks along the shore, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee there. And following are his disciples. Um, the ones at least who have been called and, and, and then behind them is the multitude of people. So all these people are following Jesus. They don't want to let him out of their sight because they're excited. What else is he going to do? He just healed this guy. Man, let's, let's follow him. We want to see what else he's going to do. They never left him. They were astonished. They were fascinated. They were totally blown out of the water by what just happened. But they followed him out the door and they're walking along. And there must have been a mass of people around him at this point. And that's the point we come at in verse 9. It says, And Jesus passed forth from there, from the house of Peter, along the shore. And he saw a man named Matthew, the word says. The other gospels call him Levi. And it's not uncommon in the Bible to have different or the same person titled, called different names. That's just the way it was. Um, there's 
numerous examples of that. Thomas was called Didymus, and Bartholomew had another name, Simon Peter. Um, you know, all these guys had different names. That's just the way it was. And so, basically, the Lord gave him Matthew because Matthew means gift of Jehovah. Okay? And so he sees him sitting there at the tax office, and he says on him, follow me. And it says that he arose and followed him. Now, if you don't know anything about Matthew, we're not going to find out a whole lot about him by his words. Because he's a very humble guy. Matthew's not one to go on about himself. You know, you know how Paul talks about, well, I did this and I did that. Not bragging, but just laying it out. Well, Matthew wouldn't even do that at all. Just his personality wouldn't allow him to do that. And so the message this morning that Matthew was a modest man. He was truly humble. And basically he, re, he reduces his whole conversation here or his whole conversion to one verse. One verse. And it says absolutely nothing about himself. But he has something to say. The first part of the text shows Jesus receiving the sinner. Jesus receiving the sinner. Well, he healed the paralytic and he forgave his sins, but how far does that forgiveness go? That's what's in everybody's mind at this point. And so Matthew, in effect, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, basically what he's saying there is, well, he forgave me. That's what Matthew's saying. He forgave me. It says that he said, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Everybody's talking about well, Jesus can forgive sin, but whose sin is he going to forgive? How, how bad a person can Jesus forgive? And Matthew speaks up and says, you know what? <laughs> he forgave me. That's very significant. Because you have to understand Matthew. <laughs> Matthew was basically considered the, the vilest person in that small community in Capernaum. He was the most vile of people. And you say, well, what do you, what, what do you mean? See, the evaluation at the time of Matthew was basically that he was the most wretched sinner in town. That's why he uses himself as an illustration. How far does forgiveness go? Well, let me tell you, it goes as far as it needs to go. Matthew calls himself here what Paul tried to take his title, the chief of sinners, just by saying that he was a tax collector. Because in those days, that was just, you know, the vilest of, of, of persons. That's what they were considered. I had a cousin, first cousin, that worked for the IRS. He was a good guy. You know, he worked himself way up and has since retired. But see, this was different. Back then, it was different. We want to talk a little bit about this so we understand what Matthew is trying to say here. See, he's a classic illustration of the Lord's power to forgive sin. And he does it in very few words. But the words that he uses are very potent. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a publican. They were a breed of people who basically served Rome. They were, they were, they were Jews who basically sold out. And they said, you know what? We're going to work for Rome. 
And basically what happened is when, when Rome moved in and took over Palestine in that area, they wanted to take taxes, obviously, from the individuals living in the land. And so what they would do is they would buy franchises from the Roman government, people would. And it gave them the right to operate and the freedom to collect taxes from people. And when those taxes were collected, then they would give a portion to Rome and they would keep a portion for themselves. They were traitors to their own people. So nothing in the mind of a Jew as is bad as being anti-nationalistic, anti-Jewish. We had a chance to go to an APAC dinner thing, and, and it was basically a uh, dinner with American-Israeli Political Action Committee, I guess is what it stands for. But they had some real big wigs there, you know, general proconsul general from Israel, and um, CIA director Woosley was there, and you know, they all spoke about, and at our table, we had everybody from Orthodox Jews to people that have totally walked away from their faith, but they're Jews, they're Israelis, and so they, they, they identify with that, and it's weird because it crosses the broad, it's not a conservative group, it, it embraces everybody. But if you're for Israel, then you're, you're part of this group is the mentality. It doesn't matter whether you believe the, theologically. They just kind of, you know, and that's kind of how it was back then. And see, what happened was when these, these guys would sell out and they'd become part of Rome and they'd start te- collecting these taxes from the people who basically burdened the people and enslaved the people, uh, they literally kind of bought their way into the Roman system. And they were a representative of Rome. Now, in Rome, you were required, under the Roman rule, they were required to kind of collect a certain amount of taxes. And then anything over that, they could keep for their their own selves. So you can imagine the motivation. Okay, they're going to get a little bit for Rome, and then they're going to put it to the people so they can have more for themselves. That's just how it worked. And so there's this, this gross abuse of the tax system back then. And tax collectors basically took bribes from everybody. That's just what they did whether it was rich, middle class, poor, it didn't matter. They, nobody was off their radar screen. And uh, they, they basically oppressed everybody. And so everybody hated them with a passion. And see, it was even worse in, in, in the nation of Israel because in their religious upbringing, they believed that God was the only one that would be worthy to receive a tithe. And so when you said, you know what, you're going to take part of this money, you're going to give it to a government that doesn't even believe in your God, that was just like, you know, off the, off the charts. And then to be a Jew who's actually taking place in that practice, okay, it was totally mind-blowing. And it was the worst possible position that you could be in. And so it's, it's important to understand that back then they had these taxes. And, and Alfred Edersheim, in one of his books, says that basically if you were a tax collector and you were Jewish, they wouldn't even let you near the synagogue, let alone in it. That's how, how bad it was. You were barred from being even around the place. You couldn't have any religious activity with your own people. Here's what it says. You were listed in a least with unclean beasts out of the Old Testament. That's, that's what they listed you with, a bunch of unclean beasts. You were like a swine in the Jewish mind if you were a tax collector for Rome. They were forbidden to be a witness in any court of law because they, wouldn't, they couldn't be believed. They were cheats. They were known as liars. They couldn't 
even give their own testimony because nobody would believe it. They were classified with robbers and murderers. Murderers. Um, and so it's interesting when you read more about this, you realize that there, there was different categories of tax collectors. There was the general tax collectors, and they basically collected just general taxes. Okay, And then you had a land tax that was on the property you own, kind of like a property tax that we have today. Then there was an income tax on top of that. All right. And so all that, those, those three taxes was just, you know, if you're alive, you're going to be paying taxes, kind of like it is today. You know, and, and so that's, that's what, what it was. So they had all these different formulas and everything. They came up with it. And the general tax collector, basically, the, the title of this guy was Gabai, G-A-B-B-A-I. That's what his title was. So, you know, when you fill out your tax form on April 15th and you sign it and you mail it in, that's basically what you say to your money, right? Goodbye. You know, see you later. You know, all right? That's, that's what happens. Uh, he was a general tax collector. He collected taxes just basically generally for everything, for Rome. Okay? And uh, they had all sorts of different taxes. You know, if you go across a bridge, you'd pay a certain tax. You'd, if you had, you know, different kind of uh, wheels on your cart, all sorts of things. Um, well, there was a second category of tax collectors. There was the general one, the, the gabai, but then there was these, these duties they were giving to different men, and, and one was a mokis. And uh, he was able to collect tax of all import, all export, everything bought, everything sold, everything on the road, bridge, all that kind of stuff. And so they would invent taxes that you'd have to pay. They would sit along the road, as Matthew was doing, and he probably sat at the crossroads there, and he would just say, oh, this guy's got a yellow cart. Well, you know what? That's the yellow cart tax. And he'd just make up an amount. And you couldn't do anything with it because he was backed by Rome. So you had no recourse at all. They could just make up taxes for whatever they wanted. And, and Matthew was, was basically one of these guys. The, the Gabais were more... You think of a franchise. They were kind of, they owned the franchise. All right? The general guy, the general owner. And then he would hire somebody like Matthew, a moquise, to go out and sit actually on the street because this guy wouldn't want to go out there and sit. He owned it and he was getting revenue from it, but he wouldn't ever want to be associated with that desk at the tax collector's office because, you know, all the stigma that's attached to it. So you had the goodbye, then you had this moquise. And it's interesting because... <coughs> Excuse me, under that heading, you have two kinds of tax collectors. You have the great Mokis, and they were basically the ones who hired somebody to sit at this table. So you had the owner of the whole thing, and then the, they had a great Mokis who hired somebody. And then they had the small Mokis, who actually was the guy who sat there at the table. And as far as evilness goes and sinfulness, they were the man, because they were willing to sit there and confront their countrymen and take whatever was needed from them. And they didn't have a conscience. They didn't care. They did it themselves. And it was a publican. That's, that's where the term, they were out in public collecting these taxes. And it was far worse to be a small or a little moquise than just a regular moquise. And that's what Matthew was. He was a small moquise. In this small town of Capernaum, 
And everybody knew it because he was out there every day stealing their money. And everybody hated him. Because they paid it, they had to pay him because they were afraid of being, you know, oppressed more by Rome. Even the rabbis of the day said, for the little Mokis, repentance is well near impossible. <laughs> In other words, they thought these guys could never even be saved. They have no conscience. So if there's one sinner in their culture, in their town, that never could be forgiven, in their minds, it was somebody who held this position as a publican or a little moquise. They'd be it. So the question confronting Jesus was, well, how far does your forgiveness go? Okay, you forgave this paralytic guy. But everybody's asking these questions. They're traveling along the shore. He sees Matthew. And he says, hey, follow me. Matthew, by getting up and following him, is basically making the statement, yeah, he forgave me. I am the worst, but he forgave me. That's the testimony that he was making. But Matthew doesn't talk about himself or about any of his potential or about how honored he was to be an apostle. Apostle, He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't say a word about himself if you look at the text because he knows the kind of person, the kind of man he is. And I believe that Matthew was under the was a man under conviction. And somewhere in verse nine, we have his conversion. That's where he was saved. Somewhere between follow me and so he arose. Matthew was converted. Now we think in our mind, well, we hear that, and we, we picture in our mind Matthew sitting there at the tax collector desk, and Jesus is coming along and saying, oh, follow me. And, you know, and Matthew's just going, wow, I don't even know who this guy is, but okay, it sounds good. And he just gets up and starts following him. Now, that's not the case. They knew exactly who he was. Everybody in that area knew who Jesus was. He had hordes of people following him everywhere because of his miracles. They knew everything he taught. They knew everything he did. They knew the wonders and the, the miracles and the signs. They heard what he said on occasion. They knew that he was coming for the forgiveness of sins. They knew exactly what they were getting into. And they were ready. Their hearts were prepared. And Matthew was a man under conviction. And he was a man who basically must have with all his heart have wanted forgiveness. He must have wanted it. But the system told Matthew, you can never have it because you're a publican. There's no way you could ever be forgiven for what you've done to us. That's why he wasn't up at the house with the paralytic seeking out Jesus. That's why he would never do that. He, didn't, he couldn't overcome the stigma. They would probably beat him up and throw him out. So he just sat at his desk, continued to get the money from the people. And finally he was confronted with Christ. And somehow he, by the, other, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he, his sin, he was, he was forced to recognize his sin. And that's the reason he got up so fast and he followed. It's not a, it's not a discussion here. He doesn't ask Jesus, well, what's involved? What's, what's going on? What, how does this work? 
In fact, over in the Gospel of Luke, it gives us even more insight, and it says that he forsook everything. He left everything Matthew did to follow Christ. It doesn't say it here in the Gospel of Matthew because I think Matthew is too humble. He's not going to brag about that. But the Gospel of Luke tells us that when he stood up and followed Christ, he forsook all. Now, you stop and think about it. Out of all the disciples, out of all the apostles who followed Christ, Matthew is probably the one who was leaving the most. And you say, weren't these other guys fishermen and they probably had fishing businesses and everything? Sure. Or, you know, the doctors or whatever they were doing. Yeah, but you know what? They had a profession that they could go back to, right? They even did. They went back to fishing. This guy, if he left, what's going to happen? Rome's going to go, okay, get somebody else in there. You're out of here. And he wouldn't dare go back to Rome and say, oh, would you reinstall me as a tax collector? You know, this whole Jesus thing was just a mistake, and now I'm back. No, they'd kill him. So he was leaving his whole livelihood behind to follow Christ. There's no way he could go back to that. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm coming, Lord, and, you know, if, if you just let me sit here a couple more hours, I can get enough money to finance your whole... No, he just left. He left everything. It says he didn't pack his bags. He just followed. See, Matthew knew what the Lord needed. The Lord didn't need his stuff. He needed his heart. Same thing God needs today. He's not concerned with your abilities and your talents and all that stuff. I mean, he's concerned with where is your heart? When you, when you look at Christ... What are you looking at? Are you looking at him as a judge? Are you looking at him as a savior? It's a big difference, beloved. He wants you to come to him as a savior. But to do that, you have to be broken over your sin, as Matthew surely was. He knew about the Lord in that small place you had to. It wasn't a big town. Everybody knew what was going on. That's why he followed so quickly. You know, and that's what... When you stop and think about it, when you know people who are truly converted, and that's what salvation is, it's a conversion, it's a transformation. It's not saying, well, okay, now I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm just going to grab all my goodies and, and take them along with you down the road. See, it's not, salvation is not my life plus Jesus. That's not salvation. Salvation is, you know what, me walking away from everything and allowing God, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, to transform me. The Bible says to turn me into a new person. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He couldn't get up fast enough. Jesus fixed his love on him, searched the depths of the innermost part of his heart, his soul, and instantly turned him into a, a man of God. Not an unworthy, sinful tax collector. He transformed him. See, Christianity isn't adding something to your life. It's not even adding religion to your life. Religion damns just as quick as anything else. The question is, what are you doing with, with Jesus? He's calling you. He's saying, come to me. I'll take care of all your problems. Where's your heart at? Matthew's heart was in the right place. Edersheim that wrote a book on Jewish culture, he says this about Matthew. He said not a word, for his soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace. He 
couldn't believe it, that God somehow would save such a man as him. That's how Matthew felt. His soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace. God has a way of doing that. He throws his grace and his love upon your life, and you're just going, wow, what happened? I don't understand it, God. But I know I need it. Need it every day, every minute of every day. And he was redeemed. He was purchased. He was saved on the spot. He didn't even look back to think, you know, what was, what was there at the desk. Maybe he could take some things. Nothing. He just got right up and he followed Christ. There's a little poem by Amy Carmichael, and it says this, I heard him call, come follow. That was all. My gold grew dim. My heart, my heart went after him. I rose and followed. That was all. Would you not follow if you heard him call? That's the question this morning. He's calling you. He's offering you forgiveness. Matthew lost a career, but he gained a destiny. He lost his security in what he had, but he gained an undreamed-of adventure. He lost his material goods, but he gained a spiritual fortune. See, Matthew understood the spirit of the Lord. He knew that he came to save sinners. And he knew that he was the worst possible sinner in his community. They looked at him as unforgivable. So he's making a statement. He's including this because he's saying, you want to see how much Christ forgives? Well, yeah, he forgave the paralytic, but you know what? He also forgave me. And I was the worst of the worst. And then he was so excited. It says in verse 10, Now it happened that as Jesus sat at the table in the house, well, the other gospels basically explain to us that Matthew throws a banquet. He is, he is just psyched up about his newfound faith. He's following the Lord. All this stigma and everything is left behind. He's a brand new creature in Christ. So what's he want to do? He wants to tell people. He wants other people, his friends, to know how far Christ's forgiveness will go. And so he throws a big party. He throws a banquet. And this banquet was attended by some of the most rotten people in the world at that time. Matthew knew only people who were crummy or rotten or wretched, vile, because that's the people he associated with, because nobody else would associate with them. So he reached out to them, and he held a banquet. The only people that he knew were people like himself, prostitutes, murderers, robbers, thieves, irreligious, godless people, other tax collectors. Perhaps the the local goodbye came even to this banquet. We don't know. But Matthew invited him. He didn't tell us all the details of the banquet because in his humility, he's not one to talk about that kind of stuff. But the first thing, it's interesting, the first thing that he does when he finds Christ and Christ finds him and he's transformed, he gets excited and he wants to tell his friends. He wants to win his friends to Christ. See, do you remember the day when you came to Christ? Do you remember how excited you were? 
you remember that, you know, you didn't have a lot of wisdom and you didn't know a lot about the Bible, man, you were out there telling people like crazy, maybe even offending people sometimes because you didn't know what you were talking about, but you just knew that Christ forgave you and you were a new creation in Christ and you just need to tell everybody. Maybe you came across too strong and turned some people off. I'll take that any day over a Christian who's been a Christian for 10 or 15, 20 years, and they've just grown cold in their faith. They've grown complacent and, you know, oh, well, yeah, you know, once in a while, you know, if, if I go to the donut shop, I'll, I'll, you know, pray before my, I eat my donut, and maybe that's a witness to somebody. I mean, that's the extent of their witnessing. But in Mark 2 and in Mark and Luke 5, it basically says that he calls this banquet in his own house, Matthew does. And Jesus, he wants Jesus there as the honored guest. Can you imagine that? He's got this whole thing set up. He invites all these wretched people, and then he has Jesus there as the honored guest. I'm sure there's even people here this morning that are saying, wow, I don't know if we should hang around people like that. That's not necessarily a good thing. Shouldn't go to those evil people. I mean, we're the church. We're the holy church. We stay in here, the four walls. We don't, you know, don't have any contact with those kind of people. Don't want to soil our righteousness. You know what? That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Exactly. See, that's not the way Jesus operated. That's not the way he operated. See, there, there is a right way, beloved, to fellowship with sinners. There is a right way. You know what Jesus became known as? Look at Matthew eleven nineteen. It indicates that his name, basically, among the people says there in, in Matthew eleven nineteen was the friend of publicans and what? Sinners. And you know what? That probably started right here at this banquet. Personally, you know what? I can't think of a better title to be called. Hey, there's a Christian. He's a friend to sinners. He's, he's a friend to the most vile in our community. I had an opportunity to meet with somebody who runs a rescue mission downtown San Francisco. And I talked with him for about an hour about his ministry. And he said he started 25 years ago, just made 50 sandwiches and saw the plight of the people in his tenderloin district in which he lived. He was from uh, Taipei, I think. He's an immigrant. And he said, you know, I just started making these people sandwiches. And today he's got a rescue mission. He's got a school. He's training these, these young kids in, in, in the word of God for Christ. It's amazing. I said, what's it like down there? I mean, it must be a totally different world. He goes, well, let me tell you. He goes, right next to the building that we have, by the grace of God, God gave him a building. And that's where they have a lot of their facilities and their school and things. He goes, right next to it, there's a strip club. And I go, wow. That wouldn't fly with most of the parents in my church. He goes, exactly. He goes, it's... And, it's not a female strip club. So he goes, it's this homosexual deal. He goes, finally, we closed them down three times. Now there's a female strip club in there. We're praying that they'll close down. Actually, they did, he said, a couple of weeks ago. But he goes, we live right in the midst of it. He told me about one guy. He was walking 
to work one day, and he just struck up a conversation with this blonde-haired guy, long blonde hair, striking blue eyes, caught up in this whole lifestyle thing, reached out to him. And he said, you know, you don't know who you're going to run into. He said, this guy's a cousin of Mel Gibson. And he's down there in the, the most vile place there is in the Bay Area. And from what I understand, this guy came to Christ. His life was transformed. His lifestyle was transformed. See, that's what Christ is about. And it was so devastating to the self-righteous Jewish system of the day. The Pharisees, and you know, they kept their distance from people like this. And so in verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw that he was eating with these people, he said, Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not just an honest question. Why is he doing this? It wasn't that at all. They were making a judgment. They were vetting their bitterness. They were saying, how dare he? Look at your master. Well, how disgusted they were with this. Fraternizing with these low-life people. And you know what? True religious people, pious people, righteous men, like they were, they shun those kind of people. They, they put them at, keep them at arm's distance. That's why they were saying that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in our churches today that feel the same way. Our world begins and ends with people who are in the family of God. And it's all we can do within us to stand and, and criticize the ones who are on the outside. They're of the world. Shouldn't have any fellowship with them. I beg to differ. I think that we need to extend our hand to them. I think we need to show them the love of Christ. We don't compromise the message one bit. But if we have faith in the message, we have faith in the gospel as it's preached in a biblical way, that it's going to transform people's hearts. And so in verse 12, Jesus overheard the conversation, apparently, and when it, and he says, well, you know what? Those who are in uh, well don't need a physician. In other words, if, if, you're, if you're well, what are you going to call a doctor for? But they that are sick, go and learn what it means I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So Jesus sees this argument going on, you know, this dialogue here with the Pharisees. They're starting this thing, and he says, you know what, I'm just going to kind of end this real quick. I'm just going to point out three things to you. The first one is his argument from human logic. And he just approaches it very basically, verse 12. He says, hey, you know what? Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. And you say, that sounds kind of simple. Well, in the original language, the order really emphasizes need not. They need not a physician. People who are well, well people don't need a physician. Sick people do. And really what he's doing is he's, he's indicting the Pharisees with these words. He's saying, you're the ones who are saying they are the sickest. By your own affirmation, you're, you're pointing to these people that I'm with and you're saying they're the sickest people on earth. And by your own affirmation, common sense tells you if they're sick, what are you going to do? You're going to go and you're going to help them. You're a doctor. A physician can be expected to go among sick people. That's the analogy he's making. And so a forgiver, in Jesus' text, should be expected to go to sinful people, those people who need their sin forgiven. 
Very simple. He went to the people with the deepest need. Now, if the eyes of the Pharisees, if you're, if you're so perceptive as to see them as sinners, which they did, well, then he's questioning, where's your passion? Where's your mercy? Where's your concern? Are you the kind of person that would diagnose somebody as being sick? As a doctor, you have the cure for them and you just walk away? You think that that's good? That's what he's doing. That's the argument he's making. Very good indictment of their self-righteousness. The judgmental spirit. So they freely have defined them as sinners, but they're totally, utterly indifferent to them. Matthew uh, 23, in Matthew 23, he says, You make sure that you carry out every ritual of tithing talking of the Pharisees, the mint and the the anise and the cumin, the smallest little seeds are there. If you've got a a tenth, ten little of those deals, you make sure that you have given one to the Lord. You're just very nitpicky about that, talking of the Pharisees. You tithe on all that stuff. But you have admitted the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. And that's what he's telling him in this text. He's saying, where's your mercy? Where's your compassion? Where's your love? Where's your care? You sit up there so pious in your religious robe. Where's your care for these people? You've made the diagnosis and you've condemned yourself because you stopped there. That's it. And you know what? The same is true with us. We look at people and our neighbors, whoever it might be, people we run into every day. Oh, that, boy, that person's a horrible sinner, man. Oh, they're just wicked. But we don't give them what they need to hear, we don't give them the gospel. We don't give them the good news that Christ can transform them. Christ can forgive them if they come with a broken heart. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to invite people who are so self-satisfied with who they are. They're so convinced with their own self-goodness. They don't need anybody's help. I didn't come for those people. Rather, I came to invite people who are desperate, people who are conscious of their sin, people who need a Savior. That's why He is the Savior. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees would have made very lousy doctors, if you think about it. They're more concerned about the preservation of their own holiness than helping someone else. It would be kind of like calling a doctor and say, Hey, you know what? I'm sick. You know, I'm going to come in to see you. And he says, Hey, wait a minute. You didn't come to my office if you're sick. I don't want to catch what you got. I mean, can you imagine a doctor answering you that way? You'd think, well, something's wrong here. That's how the Pharisees were. But Jesus comes along and he expresses the fullest statement. Exodus 15, 26, where it says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Jesus came right down. He got in a room and he ate with these people. He got as close to them as you can get in that culture. That's what eating with someone was all about. It was was a very close bonding. And rather than keeping away from that and saying, oh, I don't want to get contaminated. I am the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, the righteous one. I don't want to spend time with you. It didn't happen that way. He, totally righteous, went and spent time with sinners who were totally unrighteous. And what happens is they become pure and they become white as snow because of his ability to forgive them. He was the divine physician. That's the first argument he throws out there. If they're sick, they need a doctor. 
The second argument is from Scripture in verse 13. Look at what he says in 13. He says, but go and learn. Go and learn. That's kind of a rabbinical way of saying, you know what? You messed something up. Go back and hit the books again. You got it wrong, pal. Go back and check out the law of God. The rabbis used to use that terminology, go and learn, as an exhortation, a rebuke of someone who didn't really have the understanding of the law of God in a proper way. And they'd say, you know what? Go back and go and learn. And that's what he said to them. And then he points out Hosea 6.6. It's a quotation of their own law, which they knew very well. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, God says, you know what? I'm not concerned with all your ritual. I'm concerned with a merciful heart. Here they are. They're all, you know, bent out of shape over this little ritual. And Jesus spending time with these sinners. And they had no mercy, no compassion whatsoever or love for a sinner. And in Hosea, you remember, God said to his people, you've committed harlotries, you've committed adulteries, you've gone into idolatry, you left me, you forsook me. And you still continue in your stupid religious rituals. And he goes, I've had it. I don't want it anymore. It's not sacrifice I want from you. It's mercy. In other words, what he's saying is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain obtain mercy. It's the same thing we went through when we went through the Beatitudes. God is really indicting the Pharisees here, saying that, you know what? You'll never get the mercy of God because you show no mercy. So he tells them to go and learn. He points out in their own word, their own scripture, the Old Testament. You better learn what your own text says. See, God had instituted this sacrificial system. God had ordered Israel to offer all these sacrifices and everything. But you know what? If they weren't doing it with the right heart, he said, forget it. Stop doing it. I don't want it anymore. And that's so important to understand. Because in our own Christian lives, sometimes we fall into a routine, don't we? We end up coming to church. We come to church every Sunday. And that's great. But you know what? If you're just coming here, So that you can go home and check off the list, went to church, as some kind of a religious thing that you do, it's probably better you stay home and watch TV or something. Because if you're coming without the right motivation, if you're not here and saying, hey, you know what, I want to learn more, or I want to grow, or I want to just find out what this Jesus thing's all about, or I'm a Christian and I want to grow in my faith, I'm excited, it's something that, you know, can't keep me away from this place, that's good. That's that's God putting that desire in your heart. But if you're just going through the ritual, and you see it every week, you know, he's saying, you know what, don't, don't even do it. If you're coming with a heart that's not right before me, I don't want your sacrifice. And Amos, prophet Amos says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not take delight in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer burnt offerings and meal offerings, I won't accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offering of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of your songs. They were singing. They were trying to worship him. He says, take it away, God says. I will not hear the melody of your harps, but let justice run down like waters in righteousness like a mighty stream. Amos 5 says, I have ordained all things, all those things, but I hate them because your hearts are not right. I want justice and I want righteousness. Beloved, the only way you're going to get justice and righteousness is you come to Christ. It's the only way. You can't manufacture that stuff. You can come to church till cows come home. 
That's not going to make you righteous. That's not going to make you just before God. What's going to make you just and righteous before God is when you bow your knee to God and you say, you know what? I understand now I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. I don't understand all this other stuff, but that's okay. I I do know that I have sin in my life and God, I'm bringing it to you. Crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what the gospel is all about. He will accept that. He won't accept someone that comes chest puffed out, prideful, saying, well, I guess I'll just take Jesus and add him to my life. That's not, no transformation is going to happen. You're just going to turn into another religious Christian, quote, Christian. Thirdly, he argues from his own authority. His own authority. He says at the end of verse 13, we'll close with this. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What he's doing is he's he's basically laying it out for him real clear. He's basically this simple illustration of a doctor and the sick. And then, you know, the, 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 the second illustration of your own word says this, go and learn this. And then, you know what, based on my own authority, the reason that I came as the Messiah is not to call the righteous, but to call those who need a sinner, the sinners. And Matthew knew who he was. So when Christ said, follow me, it says that he got up and he left everything, gave it all over to Christ. And God saved him at that point. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that your word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, we pray that the call of salvation would go out from this place. Lord, who those who've yet to Make that commitment, Lord, that you would do your work. Lord, it's not about walking an aisle or raising a hand. or It's not even really even about praying a prayer. But, God, it is about crying out to you in the brokenness, in the desperation of our own sin. Lord, there's not a person in this building who is without sin. So, basically, we're, we're a bunch of sinners here this morning, Lord. The only difference is some have went to Christ for forgiveness, and some have not. And Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of those to receive Christ's forgiveness. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can do that transforming work. That work that in our desperation, in our need, we cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then they can follow Christ then they can get up like Matthew and follow him. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here this morning without a sense of their own sinfulness and without a call upon you for your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.